Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you all so much. You guys have been so amazing. I am so blown away by all of your emails and all of your texts and FedExes and everything. You guys are just have been so supportive, and I am so, so grateful. Thank you so much. Today, we have a great show for you. I know you're going to enjoy it a lot. I'm going to be sitting down with producer Michael Phillips, and I'm very, very happy about that. And as you know, before I do our show, I always look at my guest and think about what I'm going to say to you as a cold open. And I'm sitting here waiting for Michael. I've thought a lot about what I want to talk about, and I guess the best way to start here when it comes to Michael Phillips is this is one of the greatest producers that you'll ever meet in film. What he's done is no less than spectacular. And what I want to share with you is how he did it and how you're going to learn how he did it was basically he wasn't your typical person coming out of USC film school. He didn't have any training in film. He didn't go to any producing college. He was a Wall Street guy who really wasn't making it there. And he had no sense of what he was going to do and how he was going to make it until somebody told him that he should think about the entertainment business and he should think about the youth around him in New York City and the people at NYU and around the area that were writing great scripts, but no one was reading them because they weren't household names and that there was a possibility with a little bit of money he could open up an office and he could find a script or two that people would be interested in. And amazingly enough, only a short time, probably around a year later, 
he'd already produced one film with Jane Fonda, who won an Academy Award for Clute. And he was in the process of producing his second film, the film that won him an Academy Award, The Sting. Both of these scripts he found probably after reading like a handful of scripts that he didn't like. But he took a little investment that he had of his own money and he put it into making an option for this person. And he bet on himself and opened his own office. That got him going and people took notice because he believed in young talent, he believed in himself, and he had an eye for great material. And it wasn't long before, instead of him calling and trying to get interest in his projects, people were calling him. And he started building relationships with other producers who he's working with on the same lot with, like Steven Spielberg, who he worked with on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which in 2007, by the way, was deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant by the United States Library of Congress and selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. And then he formed relationships with other people, like Paul Schrader, who was a first-time writer. And that led to Taxi Driver. All of these relationships he had along the way were incredible and built without any infrastructure at all. There weren't any professional people helping him to find his way. He found his own way. And as he'll probably tell you, every relationship that he really had that meant anything in the business never came from any agency or a lawyer or anything like that. They came from his relationships with people, his eye for young talent, and his great, great ability to assess the words on a page of what was extraordinary. So when you look at this guy's work, and then you include the Flamingo Kid, which is a classic, you realize that this guy who started with nothing, who had no relationships, who had no knowledge of the film business, but just had passion and a belief in himself and other young people who were his age, this guy was involved with one of the greatest dramas of all time, The Sting. One of the greatest real-life thrillers in history, Taxi Driver. Probably one of the most significant, groundbreaking science fiction movies in the world. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and probably one of the top comedies that is recognized by anybody in the business, the Flamingo Kid. And so if I had to say anything about what we're talking about today and if it means anything to you, I think the lessons are evident. If you follow the path of your heart and what you really want to do and bet on yourself a little bit and find an affiliation with others who are of your own core group, who share the same passion, the same talent as you, and you're able to recognize great material and great projects, I can guarantee you, you're going to have the opportunity to have the kind of career that Michael Phillips has. 
Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is a great, great day on location in Beverly Hills, California. I'm in the office of a man who I have so much respect for, Michael Phillips. And I can't wait for you guys to hear his story. It's really, truly, truly inspiring. And without further ado, I'm going to introduce him and hopefully his beautiful wife and producing partner in the other room, Juliana, will come over and wake him up after I finish. All right, here goes. Michael Phillips has been producing films and television in Hollywood since 1971. His films have been praised by critics and film lovers all over the world and have garnered 23 Academy Award nominations. Phillips graduated from Dartmouth College with an A.B. in history in 1965 and from NYU Law School with a Juris Doctorate degree in 1968. He was admitted to the New York Bar in 69, and after college, Phillips worked on Wall Street from 68 to 71. He then made the transition to production with his ex-wife, Julie Phillips, and their first film they produced was Steel Yard Blues with Academy Award winner Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland. With his second film, The Sting, according to New York Magazine, he turned a $1,500 personal investment into a net return of at least three million times that. The film was an instant hit that won seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Director. Phillips also produced other critically acclaimed movies, such as Taxi Driver, a cult classic that won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, the ultimate consecration for any filmmaker. His incredible resume also includes unique cinematic gems such as Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which won him Italy's David D. Donatello Award for Best Picture, and Guillermo del Toro's Mimic. Phillips also served as producer on the Gary Marshall-helmed film The Flamingo Kid. He serves as a trustee professor at Chapman University Dodge College of Film and Media Arts, and he has taught classes there on the topics of cinema of the 70s, science fiction and cinema, the films of Akira Kurosawa, and How I Got My Movie Made, featuring filmmaking and business perspectives from today's world. He's a passionate collector of ancient Asian art and has lectured before museum audiences on the subject of Buddha images. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I'd like to introduce a man who was a producer of a film, The Sting, that beat out William Friedkin and The Exorcist, Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas in American Graffiti, and Ingmar Bergman in Cries and Whisper. And famously, 
A streaker went by the Academy Awards stage right before he collected his award from Elizabeth Taylor. Please welcome my guest today, a man I have great respect for, and I'm so honored to be with him, Michael Phillips. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. You are welcome. I can't believe I'm here. This is incredible. I am in an office surrounded by movie posters of some of the greatest movies of all time that this man has produced. Taxi Driver on the Wall, Close Encounters, The Stink. But I want to start this off with something a little unusual. There's a guy I know who wrote a script about 35, 37 years ago. Never wrote a script before. I don't think he's ever had a movie made since that he wrote named Neil Marshall. Uh who wrote a movie called The Flamingo Kid. Yes. And it's fascinating to me that today, most writers, they're hoping for that moment where they can get somebody's attention like you or like Gary Marshall, who worked on the project with you and helped him hone the screenplay and produced it and directed it with you. And I guess I wanted you to share with the audience your knowledge of how that process happened when you're working with the greatest people in the world and the greatest writers in the world. You're going from taxi driver to a guy who never wrote a screenplay before in his life. How does that happen? And tell us about the well, process. They, they, the writers I'd worked with had never written, never had a mo movie but done before either. David Ward and Paul Schrader. Uh, when I got into business with them, but I'm glad you, I'm glad you asked this for for several reasons because I want to just make a global statement. Everything that's ever come to me has come through personal relationships, not through the formal business channels. And the Flamingo Kid is is an ex, a, a terrific example of that. It, it, the Flamingo Kid arose from an all night canasta game between myself and agent na named Andrea Eastman and Mama Cass Elliot. But uh, in 19, I think it was 1972, uh, Andrea brought her out to the beach where Julia, my late ex-wife, and I lived. And uh, we got into talking about cards, playing cards, and she said, I have a friend named Neil Marshall who wrote a script about uh, gin, gin rummy. It was called Sweet Ginger Brown at the time. and. It was Cass's vouching for it. Cass, Cass had no vested interest. It wasn't an agent trying to sell me anything. Just a friend saying, hey, this was really good. You ought to read it. And I read it, and I thought it was wonderful. There was one, actually one moment in, in the script that won me over, which is uh, when Jeffrey, the uh, Matt Dillon character, sees that Big Sid is flashing signs uh, and cheating to uh, Richard Krenner character, uh, and his world collapses. I just thought that was that was a great moment. I'd never seen that on film that way. Uh, so, you know, I met with Neil and we optioned the script, and took nine years of rewrites to get this thing made. But uh, in the process, you know, I, I remember it was about 150 pages. It was very long, very funny, but uh, not ready to go. And then uh, Gary Marshall had a weekly basketball game that I was uh, fanatically involved with. 
every Saturday morning. And Gary and I became friends. We used to play at his house. And then one day, and he had just done television. He had done one film, Young Doctors in Love. And he said to me, uh, he really wanted to do a coming of age story movie. And I said, well, and I described this a little bit to him, sent him the script, and uh, he, he loved it. So, you know, again, it was Mama Cass Elliot, it was Gary's basketball game. It had nothing to do with the business of Hollywood. And you talk about taxi driver Paul Schrader. Paul was at the time, uh, this is again about 1972, he was. Uh, writing a working for a film magazine writing an article on brian de palma who lived next door to us on he was living with margot kidder on nicholas beach and he was tagging around following brian and brian said to me this kid paul schrader has written a script i don't like it but i think you would like it so he gave it to me and I'd never seen anything like it, fell in love with it. So we optioned it for the princely sum of $1,000. <laughs> and this was, uh, again, you know, it was a friend, no personal interest, just sincerely saying, here's something I think is good, I think you'd like it, it's not for me. My whole experience has been that best things come through uh, not through the formal channels. I never got anything from an agent. So you've never had an agent? I've had agents because they're very helpful and uh, instrumental in my career, and I'm really grateful for some of the help I've gotten, but I've never gotten a project. I've never gotten a script from an agent because I don't have a checkbook like the studios do, so I'm gonna get the leftovers. You know, I'm not going to be. Well, there's some hell of leftovers out here on your walls. Steven Spielberg, it was a personal relationship that got us involved with Close Encounters. It was not the uh, formal formal business system of Hollywood. You said agents have been very helpful in your life mm -hmm. and your career. Mm -hmm. What are the things that the agents have done for you that you well, haven't been able to do I got yourself. Started. Well, first of all, uh, the big big break for us was uh, provided by Mike Metavoy when he was a very junior agents at uh, an agency that was CMA at the time. It's ICM now. Uh, this is the, involving this thing. My ex-wife Julia got a job in the movie business in New York um, with a new company that was planning to make movies but hadn't yet but in the process of her uh, meeting people she met Tony Bill who lives on the west coast and was an actor and was starting to become to get involved with producing and we became very good friends with Tony and his wife and uh, Tony was uh, Tony one day was talking about gee there's all these kids brilliant kids coming out of film school and when they come out with their diploma they get laughed at nobody will read their scripts you know the studios and the agents they said no 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 we get our writers from tv or journalism or you know film school <laughs> that's how could anybody uh, be good and he said you know if you just hang up a shingle and have a little bit of money you can option some of these really talented uh, writers in fact he had done exactly this with terence malick for his film deadhead miles uh, so we got into this and uh i had a grub stake twenty five hundred dollars left from 
a uh, wild ride I had in uh, stock options. I had made, I had parlayed a poker, $100 poker winnings in college into what turned out to be $2,500, and that was my grub stake. So we we gave him that, and Tony had $1,000, his family. This is all we had, money between us, and we gave it to uh, a writer, David Ward, who was finishing up film school at uh, UCLA. David had an idea, had come in to uh, present to Tony an idea for a movie about con men, and Tony liked it so much, he made an audio tape, sent it to us on the East Coast, and- He made an audio tape of what? Of David's pitch. David described the sting, the world of the con men, but wouldn't, instead he wanted to make a movie that was a con on the audience, but he wouldn't tell the ending. And, but it was so intriguing, and we said, can he write? So we got a sample of his, uh, his film school thesis, which was called Steelyard Blues, and uh, we loved it, so we made the bold move and asked for, gave him thirty all our money and said, write the sting and throw in uh, Steelyard Blues. And David's agent. He had an agent. He was coming he out of film school. Agent. Yeah, he had an agent. Or, or, you know, because maybe because the agent knew somebody was about to give him money. But... Uh, so the agent gave us a four-month option, which I didn't Only realize. Only four months. I didn't, we, I didn't realize that that's completely worthless. It takes four months to get your phone call returned. <laughs> but here I'm returning to Mike Medavoy, which, who was Tony's agent and became our agent on Steelyard Blues Project. And Mike had only one client I'd ever heard of, Donald Sutherland. And Donald was living with Jane Fonda at the time. And they were busy, they were traveling the country doing anti-war shows at uh, GI bases. And they ran out of money. And they were looking, you know, for an infusion. And this was sort of an anti-establishment comedy. So through Mike, we got Donald. And through Donald, we got Jane. And they said, um, okay, but we have to start in three months and Jane, Jane has another movie. But the two of them had come off Clute the year before. And two weeks after we optioned the script, we had two studios competing to finance this film. I mean, it really was a, a less, not a real lesson about how things are done in Hollywood, but, uh, but Mike, you know, Pulled that package together, which became the and engineered the negotiations between those two studios competing. And so, before we knew it, we were we had a film racing into production with a lot of. Uh, it was doomed from the start because Jane and Donald wanted their director of their anti-war shows to be the film director, who was. Alan Myerson, who is a wonderful and talented man, but was thrust into a situation and never made a feature film. The stars broke up on the eve of the shoot, and uh, and we had very little money, and we had a first-time cameraman, first-time art director, first-time producers, first-time director. You know, it was... We made every mistake possible, but it turned out to be um, 
And it's sad because it was, I feel like that script was the sacrificial lamb for our education. It was a terrific script and the movie was not. It has a wonderful performance by Peter Boyle. Did you know when you saw the first dailies? I didn't know uh, anything about movie making, but I had a gut and I had an eye and I would, I had things that were bothering me. And I was being reassured by our production manager, associate producer, who had a different agenda. He just, you know, his, his goal is to manage the production through the budget. And he had an answer for everything. And so I was basically uh, bamboozled. The movie was put together and it previewed badly. And Warner Brothers, to their credit, and Richard Zanuck and David Brown, who were the vice presidents of Warner Brothers overseeing the project, allowed a, gave us a black and white uh, dupe of the film and a moviola and an office and a year and uh, said to the producers, you know, see what you can do to make it better. And that process of actually physically splicing and cutting and experimenting and this and that, that was an, an amazing education for, to learn about, ah, oh, this is the piece of film we're missing. So in during that year and being able to experiment and shoot inserts and just just see how to recut scenes physically. We didn't have an editor. We were doing doing all this ourselves. It was it was really a uh, a great great opportunity. I would love to say, and we then made the film so much better. We made it a little bit better, but not good enough. You said had a great performance by Peter Boyle. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think to myself. Let's assume you have a director that does a bad job. Let's assume there's continuity problems in a film. Mm -hmm. But let's pretend like everybody's performance was as good as Peter Boyle's. Would people in the theater have cared? Yes. So if all the actors and actresses were as good as Peter, would the movie have been successful? Would have been better. But I mean, I I believed in the in the script, so I have to believe that there was a successful movie in there that we didn't get. We were we were rushed into production. A lot of us had no experience, and uh, and it shows. And it really wasn't shot, conceived, laid out, shot, prepared, and you know each scene directed exactly the way uh, it would have. It's, it's, it's maximum potential. This is what's so odd to me. You and your ex-wife never done anything before. Mm -hmm. Writer, never done anything before. Right. Director, never did anything before. Yet Jane is agreeing. She just won the Academy Award. And so how is it possible that even if you were friendly or relationships or no agents, that you could convince an Academy Award winner? Donald convinced her because they were lovers, they were living together. And I secretly don't know whether she even read the script. All I know is that they were so committed to the anti-war movement and their organization needed money and this they, there was a slot in Jane's schedule. How much money did she make in the film? We paid $350,000 to their organization, Entertainment Industry for Peace and Justice. I believe that the script is a magnet and in this case, it won Donald, and Donald was the key to 
You, you, a film coming together is like building a critical mass. You, you know, sometimes the script is so good it can attract money, like happened with this thing. Usually you have to add a little bit to the atomic pile, maybe an actor or a director. That's not enough, you get, you get more. And then it catches fire and, and takes on a life of its own. So in this case, it was Donald. Uh, Donald's involvement Mike Metaboy giving it to Donald, Donald giving it to Jane. All of a sudden, we had a package, a hot package. The script I thought was terrific. And, um, but as far as advice to uh, young filmmakers, be lucky. That's the only advice I can give. It, uh, every movie comes together, it's always a miracle. The fact that any of them turn out any good is a double miracle. Every one of my films came together in a completely unique, uh, haphazard way. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Normally, the interviews here on the show, they have a formula, but with you, I feel like I wanna break the formula a little bit, if you don't mind. Do it. Because I think the people in the audience will appreciate this more. So I'm just gonna pick three films that you produced okay. and that have garnered you enormous attention and I want you to share with me the story, in your words, how you felt it came together. Let's start with Close Encounters. In 1972, Steven Spielberg was shooting the Sugarland Express and was editing on the Universal lot, and we were shooting The Sting and editing on the Universal lot. And we had met Stephen because we were a community. We had a house on the beach. We always had people coming out. And we had met Stephen socially. But Stephen and I were the only ones for miles in our own age bracket. So we started to have lunch together and uh, became friends and discovered a mutual interest in science fiction. And uh, he had made the greatest television movie ever in Duel. And it was basically a one-person play set on the road. It was incredible. Yes, that was his TV movie. Uh, and now he's doing his first theatrical. And one day he said, I want to come out to the beach and uh, talk to you and Julia about, I have an idea for a movie about UFOs and Watergate. 
and this was 73. So the Sting hadn't come out yet. He was still editing Sugarland Express. And the movie didn't turn out to be anything like his original idea, which was the government cover-up of, uh, of what was really going, of Project Blue Book, what was really going on, but it evolved. We wanted to be in business with him because we were really big fans of his talent. Uh, and we knew that there was something here I, I really liked, uh, you know, I'm a science fiction lover. So we got into business and we set up a development deal to start working on a script. And first we hired Paul Schrader and he wrote a draft that was not quite what Stephen wanted or what we wanted. And then another writer named John Hill. Anyway, it was sooner or later it became evident Stephen had to write it himself because he was just full of ideas that were hard to... Uh, and a lot of them were very visual specifics that were very hard to uh, to communicate and he always wanted to make it what, what this movie turned out to be. When you look back on it, do you just say, that was luck, or does something in your mind say there's something more happening here in the universe? Well, you have luck? to be smart enough to recognize opportunities. I think I have a talent for recognizing talent and originality. I give myself that. And um, and I get very excited when I come across a writer or a director who does unexpected, fresh things. Um, so, but then it takes a tremendous amount of luck because Hollywood is not a meritocracy. Sooner or later, writers can actually, if their scripts float around enough, they'll find fans. But as far as actors and directors, it's, it's, it's so much whoever gets, winds up lucky enough to get in one film that can send their career soaring, even if they have limited talent, when somebody else who's very talented doesn't, uh, doesn't ever get that opportunity. So Stephen writes the screenplay, you read it, how do you feel? Okay, well there had been a sea change at Columbia Pictures. They were on the verge of bankruptcy and when we first pitched the idea to the head of Columbia, David Beagleman, he asked, well, how much is this going to cost? And Stephen said, $2.7 million. And afterward, I said, why did you say that? We, we don't even have a script. How did you? He said, I just had a sense that that was as high as he would go. This is, all your producers out there never quote a budget until you have one. You'll get nailed to it. And then, of course, when he writes a script and it's got all these kind of effects that had not been done before and we'd have to build the equipment and, and create, um, that $2.7 million kept creeping up. It ended up budget of 17 and it cost 19 We went $2 million over. You got a $19 million. You make the movie. As you're making the movie, how do you feel? Tremendous pressure. Any gossip would hit the, you know, it's going to be a catastrophe. In fact, our first screening of Close Encounters in the Medallion Theater in Dallas, we had no press. It was an unfinished film. A reporter snuck in uh, named uh, William Flanagan and for New York Magazine, and he wrote a review, and the title was Close Encounters Will Be a Colossal Flop. And the stock plummeted the next day, and Everybody freaked out. Uh, that, but it, you know, he. I, I don't know why he did that. It was a unfair, unethical, and unfair. But 
the way it played in the theater was exciting. We learned a few things about where the laughs were and where the scares were. I'll share with you the, the when I knew what we had on our hands, the opening of the film is is the crescendo and the audience applauded the crescendo before they had seen anything and I knew they were invested in this movie. It was a very exciting and surprising moment for us to see how much they wanted to love it. The name of the film, was it always Close Encounters of the Third Kind? No, we had to battle for it. I've always had to battle for a film. The Sting was a big battle for the title too. There was some, there were some other titles floating around. I think it was called Watch the Skies at first, if I remember correctly. And Close Encounters of the Third Kind had no meaning in the public mind. And so the ad campaign had to educate. Columbia Pictures thought this is a problem, you know, it's a cumbersome title, nobody knows what it means. And most of the films you made uh, feature uh, people who were stars either on the rise or huge stars. When you're doing a film like this, was the pressure off where you didn't have to have huge stars in Close Encounters? Because we had Steven. Yeah. But we got into business with Steven at the right time before he was uh, before he was Steven. He had, hadn't even had Sugarland Express out yet. And, uh, and with Paul Schrader too. He was you know, a journalist and looking to break in. Having been a guy who was attending Boston University and seeing the little boy open up the door and having the Boston U shirt on, you could choose thousands of universities all across the country. Why was it the choice to use that? You have to ask Mr. Spielberg. But that shot shows up everywhere. Ten times a year in films, isn't it? That's a really exciting thing to see the vocabulary he created for that film and the lighting and the angles. You know, you, when you have a hit film, there, there are a lot of satisfactions if it gets good reviews and if it makes money. But what's a special delight is when it has an impact on the culture beyond its own and, 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 and several, several of the things I've been involved with is just a special, you know, when I hear the term a close encounter, not even referring to the film, I just know, hey, that's, that's in the lexicon now. All right, so let's go to the next movie I want to talk about and how it came about and all the things that went into the process, The Sting. The Sting is is very very dear to my heart. It was uh, a dream come true. Everything happened, and and George Roy Hill was my mentor, and he was very generous. And at the time, was the number one director in Hollywood. Had done Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He was a great old school director, and so I was lucky in the seventies to work with a master from the old school and the masters from the new school as they were starting. But The Sting, it came together very quickly. It was such a strong script. It's still the best script I've ever read. And there was, there was a lot of competition for it, wanting to finance it. We didn't, have, we didn't have talent attached. It was just, Redford was sort of interested, but not committed. Um, Tony had spoken to him about it. For me personally, as I say, it was, I learned how a director approaches his craft. I had from Steelyard Blues, Alan Morrison was in the beginning of his learning curve. George Roy Hill 
did his homework, knew exactly what to do, and shared his uh, shared some fundamental insights about you know what movies are in his mind. Um, and he 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 asked to just work with one of us. He asked if he could work with me because it would he want three producers you know, to deal with on a daily basis while he was shooting. But he was already, you know, so powerful and he had final cut on the film that my role turned out to be to protect him from himself because he would be uh, vengeful and sometimes want to do stupid things for spite. The character of Doyle Lonigan, played by Robert Shaw, we had cast and hired Richard Boone. Uh, and for the price of $125,000, which was a handsome, a handsome deal at that time. For reasons I never found out, Richard Boone retreated to his home in Florida and stopped returning anybody's calls, including Lou Wasserman, the head of Universal MCA. And until it finally became clear, he didn't want to do the movie and he wanted out and he didn't know how to tell anybody or confront us with this. So we, uh, we had to recast the film and uh, we were talking about replacements and then Robert Shaw's name came up and Robert came in and Robert, Robert was gonna be great. Do you think that Spielberg hired Robert Shaw because he saw him in The Sting? Well, maybe, actually it could be, it could be. He was so powerful in that. So, uh, but he wanted $135,000, $10,000 more than Richard Boone. And Richard Boone was a big TV star. And who was Robert Shaw? He was this British actor. So uh, George, despite him, was not going to, you know, wanted to turn him down and actually wanted to hire Stephen Boyd. Uh, and, I was, uh, I had to basically say you're cutting off your nose to spite your face here, you know, and th this is the kind of thing that occasionally he would, he would want to, uh, he'd get angry, he'd want to spite the studio, but it was a, a flawless, a seamless production. Who was the first actor to sign on? Who was the second? George, you know, was very close to Redford and Newman based on having worked together. And as friends, they always shared scripts, say, hey, this is what I'm gonna do next, what do you think? So Paul was shooting a film in London and George Hill gave, sent him a copy of the script saying, hey, what do you think? This is my next film. And Paul called him up and said, I wanna be in it. And he said, no, I'm sorry, I already cast Bob. And he said, no, 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 I want to be Gondorf. And this, uh, re this actually threw us in a spin. In the script, the script was actually written, the, that part was written for Peter Boyle by David Ward because of the Steelyard Blues experience. And the Henry Gondorf in the script was fat, slob, you know, it was not the dapper Paul Newman character. So we had to first think, my God, you know, this is a complete reversal of that. But even bigger, the issue was, would anybody ever believe that Robert Redford would betray Paul Newman after being buddies on Butch Cassidy? And for the film to work, you have to believe, you have to believe that betrayal at the end of this thing. And we actually had to spend, you know, wrestle with the idea of uh, 
do we is this going to just be getting a star at the price of the effectiveness of the film and and Hill fun, finally came around and said you know I think Paul can do this and uh, I can make it work so luckily people love him in the role and I loved that in uh, when he died and the Academy did its tribute to the the lost talents of the year that the last moment in the Paul Newman segment was his giving the office from the sting as the, as the signature way to say goodbye is this saying these are the little things that uh, that feel great if you're involved with a film that uh, that that does something beyond uh, succeed at the box office so the film obviously gets nominated for an Academy Award. You're sitting there in the audience, and why don't you tell our audience the films you were up okay. against? It was a two-horse race, really. It was The Exorcist versus The Sting. We came out on December 25th. They came out on December 26th. They broke all kinds of records in a limited release. They were getting great reviews, and we were, and they got 10 nominations, and we got 10 nominations. So it was a horse race. So you're thinking we're going to win, or you're thinking you don't know? You could tell early on as the momentum, you know, was when you start seeing, we won seven of our 10 awards. And certainly by the time we had won Best Screenplay and Best Director, it was obvious to me that Exorcist was not going to win, that we were going to win the Best Picture. But it was so surreal. I had prepared some remarks, but I, they just vanished, and I just got up there. I was excited, and uh, it was, you know, and Elizabeth Taylor was the presenter, and there was a staged streaker just before that. But it was a, it was a perfect experience. I mean, the, it was a, a fun, fun all the way. I mean, there were dramas and pains, but the production and uh, and the out, outcome all worked out. Now you saw The Exorcist, obviously. Mm -hmm. Was there any award that you got that if you had the true serum in your veins, you'd say, you know... I think it's a great film, The Exorcist. A monumental film, really. And I think they got less than they deserved because there was a lot of public bickering in the press between, I think it was between Friedkin and Blatty. I'm not sure who it was, but I know that everybody in Hollywood was getting a little bit sick of what was going on there but it uh, it's a great great film last movie i'm going to ask you about from mm -hmm. cradle to grave mm -hmm. taxi driver uh, i'm very proud and very protective of that one i feel like i was a i was a protective the protector of the film so uh we got it required the rights and uh began trying to uh, set it up, trying to package it and set it up. But uh, after the sting, you know, the, everybody said, okay, what do you have next? And we come in and say, this. <laughs> They'd say, what? Where's Red? Is Newman or Redford attached? So it was the diametric opposite of the sting. And, uh, and it got a lot of rejection, but Oh, but how it came together is interesting because Paul Schrader uh, said to us, 
You have to go see a rough cut of Mean Streets. Scorsese's first film. Yeah. So we went to a screening, unfinished film, and midway through, I said, this is our guy, this is our guy, and that Johnny Boy is our Travis. So we made a very unusual deal. We said, we offer to both of you on condition that it's both of you. And it's ridiculous to say, you can't direct it unless De Niro's in, De Niro, you can't be in it unless, but anyway, so we made that deal with the agent. Uh, and then we went out and everybody said, well, who are these guys? <laughs> so they went off and did other things. Marty went off and did Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Bobby did The Godfather too. And all of a sudden our unknown package became, you know, a bargain. I think it was made because it was a million and a half dollar budget or a million three or something cheap. The, the talent stuck in at bargain basement prices. The producers got $45,000, the screenwriter got 30, De Niro got 35, and Scorsese got 65,000. Even though their prices, everybody's prices were up, in order to get the movie made, they all um, stuck in at a very low price. But they had contingent compensation. They had yes, back end. Everybody had back end and the back end paid off because it was did, did big business and was low cost. So we got David Beagleman again, the uh, was head of Columbia Pictures and they and he went along with it, but he got cold feet at the end and said there's not enough marquee here and uh, he said he said we want you to have Sybil Shepherd who was actually the role model in Scorsese's mind for the character of Betsy. He said, we don't have the money. She said, okay, here's that $100,000 to hire Sybil. And the amazing thing I remember about this poster, and if I can find it here in the room, yes, Sybil Shepard's name is bigger than Robert De Niro's name. No, and the one has a box around it. You have these co-stars where one is on the left but lower and the one on the right is higher. That started with the Towering Inferno, Steve McQueen and Paul Newman. They got uh, each got a special way to claim top billing. So tell us how the casting came about. Obviously De Niro was first. Who's next? Jody. Marty wanted her. And obviously Peter Boyle, there's no casting. Peter Boyle, for not getting the role in this thing, that had been written for him, we wanted to make sure he was in Taxi Driver. Keitel is, uh, you know, was Marty's leading man. He is the only one I've ever seen blow De Niro off the screen. And I think he does it in those two, in, in his, his encounters with, uh, with Bobby in Taxi Driver. You're riveted more by sport than, than Travis. So you got five roles not cast. Uh, well, you know, the part of Leonard Harris, the uh, candidate, we actually tried to get Mayor Lindsay of New York and had dinner with him, but, but he ultimately felt that his relationship with the Kennedys, uh, he, didn't wanna, he didn't want this kind of role. But, uh, but Marty's instinct was a public figure and so Leonard Harris was a, a newscaster, but he was, I'd say he was second to uh, John Lindsay. What about Albert Brooks? Albert Brooks was Marty, uh, just, you know, it, it, Marty's idea. And then 
he'd he'd meet with him and work with him. Would Marty be the kind of guy who'd meet with three, four, or five people and then decide afterwards, or just be with one? And if he didn't cut it, he'd then go to a next well, one. No, he'd meet, but he reaches for actors he knows, and and uh, if it's not if if it's outside the range of of people who come to mind then he has to interview and if, if it was somebody he knew well and he knew could do the part he didn't have to meet the role that he played himself marty the guy in the in the ta taxi he had cast george memily who he had worked with before on mean streets and uh, george happened to get in an auto accident or something and couldn't uh, couldn't perform and we were without a an actor the day before shooting and Marty stepped right in and did it himself. When did you know you had something special? I had great faith in the script that it was unique and uh, at that time. There were moments in the dailies that I saw that this is special. It was beyond what I had hoped for. And when it came out in the theaters? The first day people were lined up around the block for the matinee performance and I was stunned because the studio under they under budgeted the marketing they had very little faith in the film and they released it as if it was going to be a kind of a quick February release which is a death slot and not much money behind it but the people were uh, they were there but I, I will share with you an anecdote about the most famous line in the film are you talking to me which uh which was not in the script and i was usually on the set all the time but that day was sort of unimportant stuff inserts of him it was no other it was just bobby alone in the apartment doing stuff with his gun and so i wasn't i wasn't on the set at the time and uh so i didn't see this happening and the next day, I, I was sitting next to Marty and Daly's, and I, and I saw this. So you're talking to me, and it was electric. And he said, it was Bobby. And I, I said, well, what did you say to him? I don't know. But come on, you're the director. You must have given him some directions. What were your words to him? And he said, I said, I said do something. <laughs> so that's how, that's how a master director talks to his actors um, incredible but it sent chills when I saw that uh, really I thought this is something we've all done and uh, yeah there were lots of moments that I thought we had uh, it got very eerie and uh, and something going on I didn't know I really didn't know about its commercial uh, potential and we we none of us did sort of at the on the eve of its release we just said had dinner together and said, uh, well, we don't know if anybody will go, but we like it. We did a good job in our in our own minds. So it was very uh, surprising how over the years it, it grew in stature. Hey, everybody. I am really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water and if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, 
there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. I want to go way, 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 way back, okay? Tell me where you're born, where you grew up, what your family was like. I was uh, born in Brooklyn, but in Brooklyn, the movie theaters used to give you double features and 10 cartoons for 25 cents. And, and I was really addicted to the sci-fi movies, like The Day the Earth Stood Still was you know, the high point of my, uh, of my young life. And I had, uh, you know, I had adventure and, and, and uh, science fiction taste, uh, but I was not a student of Fellini and uh, Bergman, and I, w I came out of the masses as a, uh, as a film lover. And I grew up on Long Island, uh, first 10 years in Brooklyn, then in uh, Long Island, and then um, I went to college at Dartmouth where I met uh, Julia, who was at Mount Holyoke, and we got married while I was in law school at NYU. Anyway, we, went, we met because I went to visit a friend who was in her dorm, and Julia was on dorm duty at the desk. And so we met, and, and uh, I was on my way to the World's Fair in New York, the 1964 World's Fair. So you were on your way, that was a stop on the way. Stop on the way. And on the way back, I stopped again to see her, to see if there was anything going on. And uh, yeah, we started seeing each other in, in college and then broke up for a while and resumed, uh, broke up for a year and resumed while I was in law school and got married uh, while I was in law school. And so you wanted to be a lawyer? No, I was in law school to stay out of the draft. While you're in school, they don't draft you. It was student deferment. And I didn't want to be in law school. I actually wanted to, would have preferred to switch to business school because I had a friend, I do have a friend, a very dear friend named George Blumenthal, whose father had a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. And one day, I had two very successful nights at poker. I won $50 each night. And my friend George said, well, what are you going to do with that? I said, I don't know, you know spend it. He said, would you like to buy a stock option with me? And I said, what's that? So he explained what a stock option was. It's, it was a gamble. But uh, we started, we bought a stock option, it went up, we sold it, we bought two more, we kept doubling up and doing this. And, and we had the good luck to be buying stock options on Syntex, the birth control maker, as it zoomed, and we made like uh, almost 100 times our money uh, in, in a very short period of time. So I thought, I want, I want a career on Wall Street, which I thought would be very short, but uh, my draft board would not let me switch schools 
So I finished law school, which I skewed as much as possible toward uh, working on Wall Street. And uh, after law school, I, I went to, I didn't get drafted. I ended up joining the reserves uh, to fulfill my uh, obligation. And you're married but, uh, now? To, I'm married. What is she doing for a living? Well, she was starting in the publishing uh, area. She was first with... Uh, textbook publishers and then she got a job in the movie business and uh and she popped around got a moved quickly to two or three different jobs in the movie business in new york and that it was through her that we met tony bill and that that's what opened the it was tony's analysis of the opportunities waiting to be looked at by by all these talented people what state of the game was he in at that point what point in his career was tony he? had made a film called deadhead miles which did not get released uh starred alan arkin and written by terrence malick and uh i still quote the dialogue from it because i thought it was very funny film but uh anyway it, it it did not get released so he but he was still determined to look at young writers coming out of film school so tony pitched this and i said well i'm on wall street i can raise how much do you think we'd need and he said forty thousand dollars so i said I, I think i can raise that but before i actually got into the business of raising it he sent the audio tape of the sting which i described before and i said let's do this ourselves we we have twenty five hundred dollars. He had a thousand, and so you, when you first started, you were in a partnership with your ex and Tony. Tony. So it was a three person th partnership. We formed a co company to which was going to try to find talented, undiscovered writers and screenplays, and uh, and it happened very fast. We we I think we formed we we formed our company and. Late 1970, and by 1971, uh, two weeks after we optioned the script, we had two studios bidding for the Steelyard Blues package. I've never had anything like that, you know, that easy. How many scripts had you, Julie, and Tony read after you formed your company, you get in the office from that moment? Ten before we, we came upon David Ward. His script of Steelyard Blues was the best writing, and we said, let's do it amazing so uh we never got into the full game plan we got into this and i took a leave of absence to come out here julia she stayed in new york for a few months and then she came out and we uh we rushed into production on steelyard blues with no you know we had two months of prep it was uh, really tight after the sting you got divorced from your wife who's a producer but you still continued working together. We couldn't work together. That's why I, she couldn't be around. I was on the taxi driver. You know, I had to be in one place. She had to be in another. And on Close Encounters, we reversed those roles. But we both liked the projects, and uh, it was unwinding. It was really not fun to, because it was acrimonious. And uh, so you didn't remain friends. You were angry. No. We, though no, it was not good, and but it's complicated because we have a daughter together. So, uh, and a lot of people can relate to this. You have to find your better self and manage to be civil. Uh, 
But uh, yeah, the business, it was, it was tough to be in the same room. There's magic that happened even during the times when you were divorced with those projects that were happening and a relationship ends and you don't realize the importance and the value that you both have for each other. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there's always been something missing professionally since you stopped working together? Yes. I mean, we were much better as a team than we were uh, as individuals. Um, she could do things I couldn't and vice versa. Um, yeah, we were good. We were good partners, but then things happened and uh, Close Encounters was the last thing. And that was uh, 77 shot. That was 77. So, and that ended in, in that ended in a bad way. So we really had nothing to do business wise after that. Sometimes when I'm not really getting along with somebody and they lose their lives and they're gone, it always takes me in these directions that get me to another place. Did her passing affect you in a way that made you realize things you hadn't realized in the past? Well, when the emotional charge is gone and you can look dispassionately and generously and say, you know. Yes, I do appreciate many things uh, about her, uh, but again, it gets complicated because we were at, we were sort of at war at one point, and you know, uh, so. But for thirteen years between nineteen uh, fifteen years between nineteen seventy seven and two thousand and two. Uh, we didn't really have anything to do. I mean, sometimes there was business uh, on uh, financial business dealing with the, our past films that we had to work together on. That was never a problem, but creatively, we didn't, we didn't embark on anything new. I just want to take a moment to tell you about a documentary I did called I Killed JFK, since it's coming up on Kennedy's 100th birthday. It was an amazing documentary. It centered on a man who's been in prison for decades, who's the only person in history who ever admitted to killing JFK. He was the shooter on the grassy knoll. His story, the stories of witnesses there, the stories of everybody from Lee Harvey Oswald's mistress to CIA agents and everyone in between is incredible. This documentary will blow you away. Just go to ikilledjfk.com. You can look at the trailer, you can purchase the documentary. I'm telling you, it will blow you away. This story, this whole situation, that's a mystery that's been unsolved for over 50 years, will be solved once you buy this documentary at ikilledjfk.com. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a few names real quick. Okay. Tell me anything that comes to mind, anything that means something to you. It might be a story, might be a word, might be a sentence. Gary Marshall. Love, 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 love. Uh, Gary, uh, I learned a lot from him. Uh, and he, it was the most fun set uh, ever to be on the flamingo kid yes he makes it fun to be on set and he has his own odd things he, he said to me at the beginning look i need a lot of assistance but i'm going to pay for all of them 
how many? Seven. <laughs> One who brings tuna fish to him. <laughs> he has his eccentricities. He had his eccentricities. But he made everybody happy and laugh on set. And, uh, you know, and I saw how he makes sure that the frame can never be dull, that he always has to stick something in the background that you're not even focused on, some little funny thing going on or an announcement coming over a speaker uh, to keep it lively. The casting of that, Matt Dillon, we turned down Tom Cruise, <laughs> <laughs> which I often think, but Matt was a bigger name at the time. This is before Risky Business. And Matt had been working with Francis Coppola on two films, and I think he was scared to death about working with Gary, who was a tele in his mind was a television guy, a comedy guy, not not in the League of Francis. And so he did not take direction very well, and he wasn't comfortable with comedy. We always had to do nine or ten takes, do it all his way, and then after he was exhausted with his version, Gary would say, okay, now just try it this way. And so take nine and ten is what wound up in the film. They, it ends up terrific. It ends up as a terrific performance. Robert Redford. Robert Redford, who got a nomination for Best Actor for this thing, was complaining all through the production that his part had no character. He said, all I do is run. You know, I'm a rabbit. Give me something, <laughs> give me something to do. And uh, Robert was cr chronically late at the beginning, uh, deliberately, I thought. And, uh, and one day, Paul Newman blew him away and said, you know, is this star behavior? Is this, are you a star? And after that, uh, Redford cut his lateness down to like 10 minutes instead of 40. Paul Newman. Paul was, was such a down-to-earth guy, and so, he would always bring popcorn for the crew and laugh. But he only works, coming back to his wanting to do the film, <laughs> in the first place, he only works six out of the 12 weeks. He doesn't show up until 20 minutes into the movie. It's not a star role. Jody Foster. Jody uh, was 11, and she, uh, there was great concern about her doing sexual content, and so we had doubles doubles and hand doubles and she was off the set whenever any language was uh, inappropriate for someone her age. We had a New York City child welfare person. We had a California child welfare person. So she and her mother and her older sister were on the set all the time. So uh, in terms of her direct experience, it was, uh, she, she was protected, but she was so sophisticated and so, uh, such a natural, but she was 11, so I mean, can't really, I didn't have a relationship with her other than, how are you doing today, cutie? Martin Scorsese. Oh. Marty was uh, a, another joy to work with, although he was, he would get crazy. He had a penchant for ripping phones out of the wall, and he was scarred by his early experiences as a filmmaker, where his films would be recut or you know interfered with. So he had he had tremendous uh, paranoia about the studio. Thank God he's graduated to a point where he has he is free to do what he what he can do. 
but he uh, he was a warrior and anxious and uh, but so down to earth and easy. Everybody loved him. The way he communicated with his actors, the way he, and the crew, you know, he just his enthusiasm would be imparted and become contagious. Uh, I loved working with him. I, I really did. Steven Spielberg. Spielberg. In a lot of ways, the same thing, contagious enthusiasm. Spielberg would get so excited that he he would stumble. He couldn't get the words out of his mouth. And he'd be talking about, there'll be these cuboids at the end, and they'll be flying. And he'd be trying to slow him down. But uh, somebody asked me the other day you know, about him, and, and I, I started to remember that what's great, greatest about him is that he cannot lie. He really uncomfortable uh, in that position. So he's very truthful, and I think this is uh, this is his art. He 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 does what's true to him. He he's tremendously gifted, tremendously talented. It was a rough experience, close encounters, because he had the eyes of the world on him. He was not quite comfortable that the ending would be a satisfying payoff. Uh, he said, so you mean just they land and we do this? Because it doesn't have an antagonist. It doesn't have a lot of the conventional elements of a screenplay. And so I think the reason that the, that the ending is a cornucopia, it could have ended three or four times before it does. It just keeps washing over you. I think is because he wasn't 100% certain that it was satisfying and he wanted to make damn sure that he gave you everything he could think of. So I still like the last, I, every time I see it on television, the last 40 minutes, I sit for the whole thing. I just, it always works for me. I can't say that for the rest of the film or any of my other films. I have my favorite moments and my wince moments, but but that 40 minutes is, uh, is glorious. Christina Applegate. She had been a star on Married with Children. And her first film, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Don't Dead. Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, which I was an executive producer on. And the producers were uh, Jeff Silver, Bobby Newmeyer, and Brian Riley. And they, uh, they deserve the credit for pulling this together and getting, uh, getting her involved. And But it was... You know, people were holding their breath. I think she was 17 or 18 about, well, how is she going to do carrying a movie? And the answer was perfectly. She was uh, totally professional and she pulled off the role with, with great aplomb, I think. Bernard Herrmann. Great composer. He worked with Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. Um, anyway, Marty wanted Bernard Herrmann and uh, he called him up and he said, you know, my name is Martin Scorsese and I'm doing a movie and it wasn't Martin Scorsese yet. He was, uh, you know, he was still uh, sort of unknown. And and Bernard Herrmann, who was very irascible, said, I don't do movies about taxi drivers and hung up on him. He, he sent his girlfriend, Sandy Weintraub, to London to charm Bernard into opening his mind about this. And Bernard considered it, I guess, or saw Marty's film, whatever, anyway, he came on board. Uh, he was an expatriate, and as I say, irascible. He had not been in America in decades. 
He arrived at the LAX from London and immediately headed to the ticket counter to buy his to go back immediately. He wanted he wanted to quit right then and there without without setting foot uh, outside. But he had to constantly be calmed down. Then during the recording, uh, we recorded two days the score, and he kept hitting. Uh, there was a gooseneck lamp, and he kept hitting it with his baton, and he threw the baton and quit, <laughs> as if it was the lamp's fault. I mean, he was. We were so scared of him, you know. Everybody, he, he could go off, and uh, sadly, he died the night he finished recording. The second night, um, you killed him. <laughs> it was the lamp. <laughs> the lamp killed him. It was the lamp, but he. Uh, but we were, we were we were all very intimidated by him. And then I asked him, you know, what what this was about, the score to him. And he says, it's about women. They ruin your life. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> whatever whatever uh, it came out to. Great. Last one, Robert De Niro. Ah, the best. Rob, wow. I don't know. Best actor I've ever worked with. And uh, just amazing uh, amazing man um, he had it was a physically uncomfortable shoot because we were very hot working in a tenement we at that time the west side of New York was like Dresden it was all bombed out empty shells and we got an empty building and we built uh, Bobby's apartment and uh I mean, Travis's apartment and Iris's apartment in there. and uh, But there was faulty air conditioning. And it was a hot summer. And he had to wear a bald cap, his mohawk. He didn't shave his head because he had, uh, he had to do another movie right afterward with a full head of hair. So this was, it required a tremendous amount of makeup and bald cap to put that on. Uh, Dick Smith, great makeup great makeup uh, genius and he uh, so we would shoot and uh, be very hot lunchtime would come and we'd all oh, we'll go out and we'll grab a bite but he would he'd have to stay there we'd bring him a tuna fish sandwich he would be I mean so non-star such a trooper and he makes every actor better uh, I was uh, at an event couple of years ago and Jody Forster was explaining what he did with her which I'm not privy to the you know to the work with actors the producer is stands back that's between that's intimate between the director and the actor or between the actors but I was learning about how generous he is and in, in helping his actors and I thought hey you know hanging in there and agreeing to do this after he had won uh, was nominated, I think, at the time, and then later won the Oscar for Godfather Two. He uh, he made it happen. His his uh, commitment and sticking to it. So I'm very uh, very appreciative of him and very much in awe of what he can do. He's really amazing. Your proudest moment in show business. Oh, you know, I've never been asked that. I mean, the obvious answer is collecting an Oscar for Best Picture for The Sting, uh, which is in its own category. 
because it's 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 an unreal thing. It's just something that you always see other people doing, and uh, you fantasize would be possible. Maybe that's it. But maybe there there are there. There are moments where you feel like you've done something uh, maybe unnoticed but critical uh, to the life and the final outcome of a, of a movie, and uh, they feel good. Now, I'm proud of I'm proud of the several of my films have gotten a lot of recognition uh, and are enduring and part of the culture. Oh, and I'm also proud that Scott Joplin got dug up and reburied because of this thing. He was buried in a pauper's grave, and uh, it was the success of this thing that, that shined a light on that. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself mm. to the next level. Well, my heart was broken when Steelyard Blues was not the movie that I had dreamed it would be, but as I said, it was an education. No, I've had my heart broken several times. Cannery Row, which I long wanted to produce a film that David Ward could be his directorial debut, and, and it was, and I think is really good after the first 20 minutes. It just picks up momentum. and. I really like it. So I was very heartbroken when that failed. And uh, they all hurt, you know, the failures that you, sometimes you see it coming, sometimes you don't. Last question, what advice do you have for the young person growing up in Brooklyn, going to a small college in New England, finding his way and, and figuring out how to be the kind of executive and producer that you've been in the entertainment business? In general, I think the best advice is rub elbows with people, big, small people. I've seen this over and over again. People move in packs. Young people get a break and guy gets a job as a director and he wants to be surrounded by somebody he can trust and know. So all of a sudden he brings on a writer or an actor. and. Uh, and the other thing is tremendous fluidity and mobility in the in the industry. I've seen publicists become heads of studios two years later. Uh, actors, of course, become directors. It, uh, so be nice to the to the the guy who's getting coffee is going to maybe be a really important uh, connection for you to have. So you know, it, it's not a waste of time. Uh, and form your relationships. The other point is it's not a meritocracy. And this, you just, it, it hurts every time you see some, some undeserving uh, film or project or person uh, when you think yours, yours is much better. But producers, there's so many different ways to approach it. And some of them are canny and know the marketplace and uh, that's one way to do it. And I can't advise on that because that's not the way I work. I work, uh, I have to love it or I'm gonna run out of energy pretty soon. So if I, I mean, I've had projects last, my, the last Mimsy was 13 years. Uh, and as I said, the, uh, the Flamingo Kid was nine years. You have to, you have to love it or you're, you're gonna give up. So, uh, yeah, and it sustains you. This, that's the way I work. If I love it, then I know there's something in here that some other people might like. 
Um, but you have to you have to know yourself and what your strengths are, what you can and what you can't do, and uh, and understand it's not uh, it's not fair, you know. And then uh, and go for it if this is your dream. Go for it, Michael Phillips. I've had a great time. You were so inspirational. It's really fun to uh, to stir up my uh, memories and remember stuff that uh, I shouldn't forget. So thank you. Thank you so thank much. You. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on Louisa Reichardt from La Hambra, California. I hope I pronounced that properly. I'm sorry, I took four years of Spanish and I can't even say hola. Congratulations, Louisa, you are a winner. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Sage Fats. Five-star review on July 18, 2013, titled 100 Percenters. The review reads, a very good listen. Check it out. Thank you, Sage Fats. Congratulations. You are a winner. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain, it's never quite over, so it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Fortune. 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.